Uh, we're continuing the series, um, The Wall. The Wall is a faith crisis. It's where our will meets God's will face to face. We've talked about in this series so far, if you, if you uh, haven't been able to be with us, uh, jump on the podcast and, uh, and you can grab these messages, they're there. We talked about what is the wall. We talked about different ways that we try to deal with the wall that don't work. In other words, we all have a go-to approach, uh, two or three different methods that we use to overcome the challenges of our life that fit our personality or, or whatever. They're our way to solve problems. And, and when we face the wall, we go to those first. And by the way, none of them work. We talked about uh, how the wall is deconstructed brick by brick, one piece at a time. How we have to tear the wall down the same way it was made, one brick at a time. We talked about self-awareness, forgiveness, and acceptance last week. Now today, we're going to talk about uh, going through the wall. In our journey through the wall, there's some critical transitions that we go through. I'll list them quickly for you. We go through the transition of who we think we are, who we think we are, who we really are, who God really is, and who God wants us to be. In other words, we come to deeper levels of awareness. On, on, we first deal with who we thought we were. Then we move to who we really are, who God really is, and who God wants us to be. Going through the wall is God's call on our life for us to know ourselves and for us to know Him in fullness. Somewhere in those transitions, we come face to face with our own failures. In other words, part of getting through the wall, part of that self-awareness and forgiveness and acceptance is coming face to face with our own failures because we all have them. When my wife and I were first youth pastors, we'd been youth pastors a couple of months. I'm leaving the church one day in my car, and I see Josh, a young guy in our youth ministry. He's maybe 19, 18 or 19. And he, he waves over at me, and so I pull over and roll the window. Hey, man, what's going on? And I can still see his face. He looked like he had seen a ghost. He was as pale and frightened and traumatized. I said, Josh, man, are you okay? What's wrong? And he told me this story. I'll never forget as long as I live. He said, Friday night I was at the mall. Or, or first he told me, he said, have you heard, a, did you read the paper? There's a kid in our community who uh, decided to play Russian roulette. And the gun went off and he shot himself and he killed himself. In the, in the, if you know what Russian roulette is, you put one bullet in, the, in a chamber that holds six and you take turns putting the gun to your head and pulling the trigger and, and see who finds the bullet or see how far you'll go before everybody chickens out. So these guys had gotten uh, drunk or high or something and decided to do this, and he got the bullet, and it killed him. And so Josh says to me, you heard about that story? Yes, Josh, it was terrible. He said, well, I, I want to tell you something. He said, I was at the mall Friday night, and I saw him, the kid that shot himself, and he said, the Holy Spirit told me to go over and talk to him and tell him that God loved him. And he said, I couldn't do it. 
He said, I prayed. He said, I even got out in front of one of the stores and I started pacing back and forth. My hands started sweating. I was, I was grabbing my hands together like this. I was there 20, 30 minutes. Pray, God, I can't, Lord, I, I don't know him real well and I can't do that and I can't do that. And, and, and he said, I know the Holy Spirit was dealing with me. He was telling me to go love him, to tell him some specific things. And he said, I couldn't do it. He said, and now he's dead. And he said, I don't, I'm pretty sure he wasn't a believer. What do I do now? I'm just going to tell you, two months into ministry, there's nothing I heard in Bible school that helped me with that. I wasn't ready for that. Josh, I, I cried with him, I prayed with him, I hugged him, I told him the best Silly things that I knew how to say, I didn't know what to say. But it does sort of push a question to the front of our mind this morning. What do you, what do, you do when you fail? What do you do when you fail God? How do, you, how do you deal with that? Probably no one in the New Testament had so deep of a confrontation with his own failures other than the Apostle Peter. Now, now maybe Paul the Apostle... But most of his were before he was a Christian. Most of the Apostle Peter's were after, <laughs> or at least the ones we know about. Before we look at John 21, let's look at some of the Apostle Peter's failures. Remember, the waves were running, and Jesus comes out on the water, and the Apostle Peter decides to walk on water. He steps out of the boat. He gets about one foot out there on the water, looks down, realizes it, and then sinks. Remember the time he rebuked Jesus? Jesus said, I've got to go to the cross and die. And he said, no, you'll never die. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. I don't know how you would feel about that. I would feel that was a pretty epic failure. Jesus says, this very night, you will fall away because of me. Simon Peter says, even if everybody else does, I'm not going to. And Jesus says, oh, yeah? Before the rooster crows three times, you'll deny me. Or before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And then the apostle Peter says, even if I die, I won't disown you. Uh, Peter would have been the kid uh, uh, out at recess who always throws the ball ten feet over your head and says, I'm sorry I keep throwing it over your head. I don't know my own strength. I just don't know how strong I am. Pretty unaware. Jesus took Peter, James, and John to pray with him, and they fell asleep. And you'd know apostle Peter would be in that group. They come to arrest Jesus, and what does Simon Peter say? You'll never take him. And cuts the guy's ear off. I don't know how you compute when you cut a guy's ear off and Jesus puts it back on. I mean, I don't know how much more correction you can hear than that. No, leave their ears on. Then after the soldiers escort Simon Peter, uh, uh, Jesus away, Simon Peter follows at a distance where he hides in the courtyard, sort of spying on Jesus. And that's where he was caught by one of the locals and said, hey, wait a minute, you're with him. He said, no, I'm not with him. Yes, you're with him. No, I'm not with him. You're with him. And then, then Simon Peter starts cursing. Beep, 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 exclamation point, you know, pound sign. I don't know the man. And then the rooster crows. And when the rooster crows, 
his own words play over in his head like a broke record and he says I'll never fall away I'll never fall away I'll never fall away I'll never disown you and the Bible says that Simon Peter broke down and cried the next time we see Simon Peter he's back out on the sea fishing now with friends like these Jesus doesn't need many enemies does he Jesus is dead I want that to sink in for a minute at this particular point in history there was a time Jesus was actually dead. And Jesus, at this moment, Jesus was dead. It's all over. And the failure that we remember the most about Simon Peter is the one that's still lingering on his mind. How could I have lied about knowing, not being with him, even ever heard of him? How could I have lied about someone that has meant so much to me? And, it, and as Simon Peter stares into the black hole of Jesus' final hours, the regret must have been killing him. H have you ever had somebody in your life pass away and the thought that plays like a broken record in your mind are the things that you wish you would have said and now you can't? This has to be how Simon Peter feels now. But what is Simon Peter really afraid of? Is it that there were things that he wanted to tell Jesus that he can't tell Jesus now? I don't think that's the deepest thing of his soul. I don't think the deepest, the deepest thing in his soul is regret. I think maybe the deepest pain in his soul is failure. Not just that he failed, not just that I can stand here today and list the ways he fails, but he has actually become a failure. Give up, go back, turn away. When I was a young believer, the enemy, the enemy tortured me. The enemy tortured my mind with this thought. You'll never live the full Christian life. You'll never live in full freedom. You'll never overcome these certain things. You'll never overcome these parts of your family. You'll never overcome them just badgered me and badgered me and badgered me with not only my own family's brokenness but with my own failure and if and if you've never been tortured that way you realize the greatest pains not regret the greatest pain is your own failure we all battle with it at some point isn't that one of the deepest snags that hit most of us in the wall Look, after all the finger pointing, that church hurt me and that pastor did me wrong and God let me down and my first wife left me and my first husband was too mean and my parents were wrong and my kids just don't understand me. Beyond all of that, isn't there something else? Are those the things that really keep us from moving through the wall? Or is there something else, something deeper inside? Is there the fear, if we're gut honest, that I tried that God thing, I tried, I did my best, I put my best foot forward, I did right the best I knew how, and it just didn't work. I failed. And now I realize, not just that I failed, I'm a failure. It's easier to affix blame on somebody else, isn't it? It's easier to take a victim status and say, it's not my fault, it's that person who hurt me. It's easier to do that than to deal with the wall. It's more comfortable to become a victim than it is to press our will, flush up against God's will, and hold it there until ours melts away. 
when, when we lived in uh, Gulfport, a man wandered into our office one day, wanted to see me. I'd never met him. He walked with a cane, and he was a, um, a general in the military. And he sat in my office, and for three and a half, four hours, he told me a story. He said he had grown up with a picture-perfect family. I'm sorry, his family had grown up. He had four kids, four boys, and his house was the place that everybody was at all the time. His wife was a homemaker. He had risen to the rank of general, and kids from the neighborhood came and played at his house. Incredible, incredible military career, incredible, um, incredible family, great kids. One of his sons was on the elite team uh, however big the group was that was sent in to get Saddam Hussein. His son was on that team. And his kids had all been raised, had a great childhood, had graduated high school, had all moved on and moved out. He's empty nest now. And he had gotten entangled uh, with a lady who had a couple of kids who were abused. And he took them on to try to take care of them. And it spun out of control. And he started an affair with her. And he moved in with her, and he left his wife, and he left his family, and he just wrecked it all to pieces. And now he's sitting in my office, and he's unloading on me things that he had not told anybody, and he just had to get it out. In the end, it was his own failure that just wrecked him. Simon Peter is dealing with who he thought he was. He thought he was courageous and a leader and instinctively had the right answers. He thought he was committed to Jesus to the death. He thought he was faithful and dependable and loyal and special and somehow different than all the other Christians. He's the one that'll never leave. He's the one that'll never turn his back. Now he's hit the wall and he's coming to grips with who he really is. He's learning that he's really a liar and a coward and impatient and impulsive, manipulative, a big mouth who's more talk than action. When push comes to shove, he runs. And now, worst of all, maybe he's even a failure. But in a twist of epic proportions, something amazing happens. Simon Peter meets Jesus again. Remember the Jesus who's dead? Simon Peter meets Jesus again. Some of the disciples are out fishing and they spot a man walking on the seashore. Look at John 21, 7 through 9 with me. Then the disciples whom Jesus loved, the disciple who Jesus loved, said to Peter, It's the Lord. Hey, that guy walking on the bank over there. It's the Lord. We thought he was dead. It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat. So here, here's the Apostle Peter stroking it and they're paddling behind him in the boat trying to get to shore they're towing the nets full of fish for they were not far from shore about a hundred yards when they landed they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread now the next few verses basically say the disciples share breakfast with Jesus a breakfast that he had prepared and Jesus begins to talk specifically to Simon Peter look at verse 15 when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, it's interesting. Jesus specifically 
I, I've always pictured this scene with Jesus and, and Simon Peter alone. This happened with the other disciples that were on the boat. We're all sitting there at breakfast. They're in a small group. They're having a small group. And Jesus points Simon Peter out in front of everybody and says, hey, you, you, you with the fish, do you love me? Well, that's kind of, why, 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 why are you picking on me? What, what, he said, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you, you know I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Two times in the New Testament, a charcoal fire is mentioned. One, when Simon Peter is following Jesus to be tortured and beaten, he's warming his hands over a charcoal fire when the person finds him and says, hey, aren't you one of his followers? And he says, no, I'm not one of his followers. He's warming his hands over a charcoal fire when he says, I never knew the man. Now, the only other place in the New Testament we ever find a charcoal fire, Simon Peter is sitting around breakfast face-to-face with Jesus. And he's being warmed by that same charcoal fire, the same smell, the same colors, the same crackling, the same look. What What does Jesus tell him on the seashore? Peter, do you love me? Yes. Do you? Yes. Do you? Yes. You know everything. Feed my sheep. Did Jesus already know that Peter loved him? Yes. What Jesus is after is what Jesus is always after. He wants to resolve the deepest issues of our heart. Our hearts are like deep wells, and Jesus knows how to pull the water to the surface. What he's saying is, you failed, but you're not a failure. Our relationship isn't over, and I have plans for you that you don't even know about yet. And then in a unique way, I think what Jesus is saying is, is I love you. Look, every third grader who gets a little note slipped into their desk that says, do you like me, yes box or no box? They know what that means. You're not actually asking me if I like you. You're telling me you like me, right? That's what the note is for, right? That's a way to start the conversation. Jesus says, do you love me? What is he saying? I love you. You're not a failure. I'm not ready to kick you out. I'm not done with you. I've got plans with you. You don't know anything about yet. I love you. Nobody said, nobody asks anybody they don't love, do you love me? Why would I care? Jesus is saying, I love you. And this is the place now where Simon Peter is transitioning from who he really is to seeing God for who God really is. The one who can sustain our failures and love us anyway. Simon Peter's through the wall but not beyond it. Peter didn't really want to abandon God and neither do we. But the minute he heard him call, he dropped those nets, he jumped overboard, he swam to shore. What his heart really wanted was to resolve the failure, resolve the relationship tear, resolve. He just couldn't make all the pieces fit. 
If in the deepest part of your heart you didn't want to trust God, there would be no inner conflict. Have you ever felt conflicted about trusting God? Have you ever felt conflicted about believing Him? Have you ever felt conflicted about about knowing him or, 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 or longing for him or hungering for him, that conflict is a signal that if you didn't really want God, you'd have no conflict. That's where it comes from. What his heart really wanted was to be reconciled. But if we're going to get through the wall, we have to go back to the charcoal fire. And we have to face the things that were there before. So we have to face the painful things until they don't hurt anymore. We have to face our failures until we know the difference between failing and being a failure. We have to face confusion until we find clarity. We have to face unanswered questions until we realize we don't have to have the answers. We have to realize knowing who is more important than knowing why. Why is it when we hit the wall, we become distant from God? Why is it when we... I've I've noticed a fascinating thing about humanity, about mine and about other people's. Our default setting as broken people is when we endure pain, reclusing. When we hurt, we tend to take the wound in and hold it. When we hurt, we tend to back away from God. Our, Our default setting as broken people, and it's only through deep growth in faith. It's only through receiving God's love at a deep level do we ever really learn how to run to Him when we hurt and fail rather than to withdraw from Him. When we're depressed, when we're tired, when we're weary, when we're lonely, when we're wounded, when we're hurt, we tend to shut God out. And this is where the Apostle Peter was in this moment. We pull away and wait for things to make sense again. Wait till one of those earlier stages of faith reemerges until we're sure we can trust God, until we got the answers, until we've fixed it, until we've resolved it. But maybe the hurt is a symptom and not a problem. Maybe the hurt is there to surface the broken pieces, and that's why God wants us to stay up next to that wall until those things are healed and our will falls away. The wall is not rational, it is relational. So how do we approach it? Relationally. Jump over the edge into the water and start swimming. Swim and sit on the shore with Jesus. No matter what happens, it will strengthen your relationship. Now's not the time to move away from God, but to move toward Him. I'm going to ask our worship team to come. If I could talk to Josh again today, I think what I would say to him is, Jump overboard and swim. Now's not the time to go away from God. Now's the time to go toward Him. You failed. No doubt. But what does that mean? Does that mean you're out? Does that mean God's done? Does that mean He doesn't love you anymore? What does it mean? It means, you, it means only He can fix this. Backing up from the only one who can fix it does no good. Those issues only God can fix. Remember when we talked about the wall and we said we all have our favorite way to get around it? We try to dig underneath it or build a ladder and go over top of it. Or or we try to um, outsmart it 
or, or we try to uh, knock the bricks down with a hammer or we try to drill holes into it. Remember all the tools that I told you? None of them ever work. None of them work. There is one tool that does work on the wall. And it'll tear the bricks down. It'll start to break the bricks apart. And I promise you, it's not a tool that any of us ever use naturally. We, we have to learn to use it. There's one tool. It's bread. Bread will break the bricks. It's the bread of fellowship with Jesus that heals our inner soul. So what do you do? You take your bricks to breakfast. You bring them around the charcoal fire and you sit with Jesus in solitude, in reflection, in meditation, in study, in praying, in listening, in hearing, in following, with just being with God. There is no other cure on earth but to let the bread of fellowship with God over time heal the inner part. Help us deal with our failures. Help us overcome the things that have held us back. And when you get there, you'll find Jesus has already broken the bread. And he'll drape a blanket around you. He'll cover you. He'll feed you. He'll strengthen you. He'll forgive you. He'll restore you and he'll love you. Here's the point today I want to I close with. To get through the wall, something always has to be given up. The only thing that makes us get stuck in our faith journey, in our faith growth, it's always the same thing. It's that we're holding on to something that we haven't been willing to let go of. And when we let go of it, we start to move again. We're holding on to something. There's a lot of things that can be. Most of the time, we only even discover what it is when we break bread. When we meet with Jesus and we break bread and we hear his heart and we know he's not rejected us, he loves us, only then do we start to understand what it really is. The Apostle Peter saying, do you still love me? Jesus says, do you love me? I love you. To get through the wall, we have to let go of some things. It could be a wound, a pain, a dream, a desire, a plan, a perception, an opinion. Maybe you're here today and you say, I can't explain this painful thing that happened in my life. God owes me an explanation. You might have to let go of the need for that explanation in order to move on might be waiting for something that's not coming maybe it was in your first marriage maybe your oldest child maybe that church relationship you'd be surprised how many former pastors and spouses that find their way through this church uh, the first two years the second year I was here we had five pastors wives within a six-month period come through this church whose marriages has, had broken mostly because of adultery and they were wounded and rocked. I'm saying to you, everybody faces something 
And when you let go of what you held, maybe you need to let go, give up the need to get back or the need to get revenge or give up the need to punish yourself. I've got to earn my way back in. Maybe you've got to give that up or you'll never go forward. Maybe you've got to give up the American dream. Maybe the American dream's dividing your heart. I want control. I want prosperity. I want security. I want power. Maybe it's dividing your heart and you have to give that up. You're stuck. You're pounding that wall and I'm telling you, there's nothing in the American dream that's going to get you through that wall. That's the only tool. And maybe maybe Jesus is waiting at the charcoal fire. Here's what I want to say to you this morning. Everybody standing. The Apostle Peter's failure was a relationship failure. It was a relationship failure. Really. Prayer team, would you come? It was a relationship failure. Here's what I just want to say. This is going to be very quick and very clear. What I want to say this morning is, what is it in your life that God is asking you to surrender? It could be a hundred things I didn't say. What one thing in your life is God asking you to surrender? He's asking you to let go. He's asking you to forgive. He's asking you to give it up. He's asking you to let yourself go. He's asking you to let go of needing the answer. What one thing is it that God is asking you to give up? And when you do, you'll move. Every eye closed. That's the question. The question is in the house.